Welcome to Women in Leadership Talk, where you'll hear from successful women who are empowering other women with their stories of adversity, resiliency, and success. And here is your host, Vicki Bradley, founder and CEO of Women in Leadership Empowered. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women in Leadership Talk. We are so excited. We have Dr. Robin McKay with us today. Robin, thanks so much for joining us. Super happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this all summer. This is one of my first podcast recordings back at uh, at the at the desk after this long summer. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. thank you for sharing that time with us. We really appreciate that. And I want to thank our audience for being here today. We know you have a choice as to what podcast you listen to. And we're super grateful to have you at Women in Leadership Talk. And so, um, you know, let me, before we even jump into our topic, let me do an official bio of Dr. Robin. So she is known as the Whole Brain Coach and is an award-winning psychologist she is a leading expert in spiritual intelligence. I can't wait to, to dig into that a bit, where she builds bridges between reason and intuition, science and spirit, and individuals' heads and hearts. And wow, that's that's incredible. I love that. I talk a lot in my energy leadership about connecting, getting out of your head and connecting it with your heart. So that's, uh, that's going to be some good conversation. Um, she has her PhD in counseling psychology from University of Kansas, where she studies diverse concepts ranging from spiritual intelligence, personal development to positive psychology and creativity. And so Robin, you've got just an incredible background and we're excited to tap into that today and, and learn more about you. And I'm sure our audience is ready for me to get going, get talking. <laughs> let's do it. All right, let's do it. So today we're going to actually be discussing why we need to take that pause before we, you know, really think about downshifting our career, especially when it comes to burnout. And, you know, this has been really prevalent through COVID. Uh, how many people have, you know, decided to even leave the workforce altogether? Um, but before we even get into all that, maybe share a little bit about your background and, and how you became so intent um, to work with clients on the whole brain. My background I always, I always get stumped on that question because I wonder how far back I need to go. But I will say this is that I was a STEM girl from the time I was a little girl, science, technology, engineering, and math. That was something that was always very important to me. I was always a curious kid and I got my first microscope when I was 10. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was a hundred percent disappointed with the light source. It was just a mirror and I can't even tell you, I don't, I don't even know what kind of microscopes like adult humans had at the time, but I knew it wasn't that. So early in my career, I worked in biotech and I had the opportunity to work with high powered microscopes and to be able to do those things that as a little kid, I always was interested in and curious about. So because I was a STEM kid, I got mapped into you know, biology as an undergrad, I thought I was supposed to go to medical school and I didn't get in the first time I applied and I didn't have a mentor to tell me, sweetheart, a lot of people don't get in the first time they try, go do, go try again. But uh, what I did have was just this determination to use my skills and abilities as best I could. I was a good writer. I knew science. And so I landed in biotech and that really kicked off my career in terms of um, the, the corporate work that I had done for about 10 years. And it also created the conditions for burnout. 
to show up for the first time as well. So I burned out the first time when I was 27. And when I did, I realized how much of myself I had put aside in order to pursue what I thought were my greatest aspirations, which were to become a scientist in, you know, in biotech, but I was kind of bored with it and boredom on top of burnout is just not a good combination. And that was really a call from my heart to start connecting in with the things that I held precious and dear, my values. And in addition to being a science kid, I was also really intuitive when I was a kid as well. So I would know when like teachers were giving pop quizzes and I would just study for it real quick and then get A's in it. I wasn't cheating. I just knew stuff that other kids didn't know. And I couldn't explain why I knew that. I just did. So the, the long answer to your question about this whole brain and connecting head to heart is because I had to do that for myself. Mm -hmm. I had to learn about my own intuition, my own emotions, which I had been largely ignoring for most of my twenties, actually, because I had spent so much time being burned out in addition to depression and anxiety. And in my recovery period, that's really when I started unlocking the mystery of my heart, the mystery of my intuition. And that then led to this whole lifelong discovery around spiritual intelligence, intuition, and really integrating those two seemingly disparate areas, right? Science and spirituality. How do you integrate that? How do you integrate logic and intuition? Well, you do so because they exist in all of us at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I So I love what I heard you share there about listening to yourself because mm -hmm. our bodies, our hearts will tell us when we're out of alignment, mm -hmm. uh, when we're not being congruent with who we're meant to be. And you, you said it, we all have it. Mm -hmm. And so it's, how do you tap into that? And how do you um, really listen to what your body is telling you? And, and that's such a, that's very vulnerable of you to, to share that and show up that way. So thank you. I, I think that was a really important share with everybody um, and, and listening to what your intuition is telling you. So often we just, we put it on a back shelf and we don't hear the signs or see the signs. And, um, and then before you know it, you could be burnout or, or worse, you could become very or sick worse. or yeah. Yeah. Or exactly. want to quit or leave. And that's a lot of times what happens with, we'll just say emotionally intelligent. You don't even have to be spiritually intelligent. Just an emotionally intelligent female leader is we get burned out. And the, the go-to is I, I don't want to quit, but I have to. And so there are still to this day, a lot of people who are walking away from their positions to find meaning and purpose in their lives. That's a legitimate desire within our hearts. I'm not entirely convinced that walking away from our work is the best idea, especially if you're already burned out because wherever you go, there you are. Right. Oh my Putting gosh. Your... I say that all the time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> love it, Robin. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So we have to look at in, in the framework of burnout, healing, healing ourselves before we take off into another direction. Although what I was going to, I wanted to kind of circle back to something that occurred to me, which is that for a lot of, for a lot of women leaders, we've been trained from the time we're little girls to just put the intuition on the back burner that reason science has primacy in our lives. And if you can't prove it, if there's not 
data that's written in a journal article somewhere, it doesn't exist. And you and I both know, and our listeners, I'm sure know too, that that's not true. And yet we've been conditioned for our whole lives to expect that it's true. So we also have this sort of self-betrayal around our own inner knowing because we've been trained into looking outside of ourselves for the answers, for the right answers, rather than tuning into the wisdom of the heart and the body. Yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. And I'm so glad you you shared that because oftentimes it is the external resources that we're looking for, that external answer. And if you can just get out of here <laughs> and get into the heart space, you can you actually get the signals, right? Some of us are harder, I think, to to get through to than others. Um, but it, it's interesting how the the body has a way of telling you, um, you know, and I'll give my own example, like, you know, high thriving corporate employee, you know, ran many organizations um, and I got sick and I didn't listen the first time. And then the second time yeah. I crashed again. And then it was the third time I went, uh oh, okay, I better start paying attention. So to your point, we get signals. You do. And here's what I know about personality is that personality exists on a bell-shaped curve. And there are some people who are really listening to body signals. Let's just say that. There are some people like me who are very sensitive to what our bodies need. Mm -hmm. We're sensitive to stress. We don't tolerate frustration very well. And so we do self-soothing behaviors in order to kind of calm the nervous system. And we get up and take breaks and we wander around and we do those things. And then there are people on the other side of the tail of the curve on the, on the lower end of that, who really are quite adept at ignoring their body signals in order to do the things that need to be done. So they become marathoners, you know, distance runners, um, and they also marathoners at work too. So ignoring their body signals, and they're the ones who are most likely to burn out physically to have something happen, kidney infection, bladder infection, God forbid, some kind of cancer will show up. Um, simply because there, there seems to be a disconnect between head and the rest of the body, head and heart, head and the body. So when you're in physical burnout, the people who aren't particularly sensitive to stress may not even recognize that they're in physical burnout unless and until they actually, the body actually breaks down. It stops them. Does that make sense? hundred percent. I was that person. (laughs) I kept getting signals. (laughs) So we're on, we're on the opposite tails of the curve. So I burned out very early because of how my system is wired. And so like the first time I had to have somebody tell me that I was burned out, that didn't occur to me on my own. But once I did, I knew that like there was, I didn't have a choice. I just, my body was like, forget it. I couldn't sleep at night. I was waking up. I was rising early, not being able to sleep through the night, those kinds of things that just really created a lot of disruption in my life that I had no choice except to deal with. Yeah. Well, I, I am proud of you for listening in your twenties <laughs> because it took me till my forties Yeah. And, and, and then the body saying, Mm-mm, yeah. I can't do this anymore. And even when it told me I couldn't do it anymore, I kept doing it. And, mm-hmm. and you see this a lot Um, and I, I don't want to get too far off track here, but I think this is an important conversation because especially probably the last 10 plus years, you've seen 
so many more autoimmune diseases manifesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and a lot of that comes from the stress and, mm-hmm. and we're holding all this stuff inside and, and not finding ways to release it or right. tap into it to your point. Um, right. So we've been missing that sensitivity to say, oh, you know, let's take another Tylenol to make our head quit hurting. Well, is that maybe really the answer? <laughs> is it really the answer short term, perhaps? And well, in the last two years, two and a half years, I guess, at this point, whenever we started this, um, this chapter in our lives with staying at home and everything kind of coming in, coming into our personal space work and the boundaries between work and life have been blurred for a while now, everyone's in surge capacity. So even those of us who aren't particularly sensitive to stress are now saying, I like, I don't know even what's going on here. And it's kind of throwing people into existential. Do I dare say crisis sometimes? I don't know that it always rises to that, but definitely conundrum. Like, what is the point of all of this? And walking, walking away from work seems to be a pretty good strategy for some people in terms of getting their lives back on track with their heart's desires, with the path that they're meant to be walking rather than doing something that somebody else told them they ought to do when they were, you know, 18 and didn't know what to do. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think you, you just tapped into it. I mean, um, there is a, a much more of a, an awareness of people saying no more, right. There's gotta be more to life. Um, so let's dig into that a bit, a little bit, especially women, like where, where that's coming from, from that downsizing or leaving altogether. And how do we get to that place where we can pause before we do it? What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Well, with so many competing priorities at this time in the world, I was just reflecting in my own life as I was preparing for our podcast today that I've got my golden doodle puppy out in the other room. My husband is working his at his in his office for his job during the day. Um, I've got pillows stuffed under my office doors to muffle some of the noises. (laughs) And that's just me with being a dog mom. Now, let's amplify that out to moms with young children or moms with teenagers um, who or just women who have competing priorities that are all encroaching on this sense of self sense of purpose that we know in our hearts that we're meant to be cultivating. We know that we're meant to be contributing and mastering things and creating. And yet we sort of get paddle tracked into this one way of working, one way of doing one way of being in the world. So with the encroachment of all of these competing priorities, I think a lot of women, not all, but a lot of us are saying, wait a minute, like, what is actually important here? And it's bringing up these heartfelt desires that maybe we've had our whole lives that are finally coming to the surface and saying, now is the time. Like there's this, um, I've noticed this time sensitivity, not like running out of time, but just like now is the time, whether it's that I'm turning 50 or I'm turning 40 or whatever it is, there's this kind of clock that's saying it's go time. And I can't continue to just be on the gerbil wheel and do the same thing over and over and over again. I'm not a robot. I'm not a clone. I'm not a cog in a great machine. I am a woman and I've got desires and I have hopes and dreams and nobody's going to advocate for them except for me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Does so, this make sense? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I think that, and I, I see it as well. I see a lot more questioning and, and, and a little bit of confusion, right? People looking mm-hmm. for clarity on, you know, what is the right thing to do next? Mm-hmm. And we've put so much pressure on ourselves for our entire lives and, and, you know, even thinking about where does that come from? Like, you know, it starts at such an early age. I know you had mentioned, like, you know, even if we think about school, like we put all this pressure on us about grades, like we have to outperform, we have to, and we're, you know, I watch my 17 year old and she's like, no, 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 I have to make really good grades. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. And, and that's wonderful. But that internal drive to be doing that. And so I'd love your thoughts, Dr. Robin, on why you think we put so much pressure on ourselves to be so much for everyone else. (laughs) When I was a little girl, there was a commercial for Ginate Cologne. Do you remember this? I don't know if you remember this, but it was, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan and never let you forget you're a man. Yes. Yes. I was probably five or something when that came out and they would play it in between whatever soap opera my mom was watching. So it was programmed from the time I was a little kid that I should just be able to do everything and not just to be able to do everything, but to do everything very well. Maybe that was the case for you, but I do know that there are societal and cultural expectations, familial, genetic, generational expectations on how we're air quotes supposed to be in the world. There was an article that came out, this is probably about 10 years ago now, but it was in the New York Times and it was a study done on um, high achieving girls. Mm -hmm. And they were asked about what it meant to be Mm well-rounded. Their definition of well-rounded was to get A pluses in everything or A stars in everything. So not, it's not well-rounded, that's perfectionism. So we have this in we have the pressures to drive for perfection. You and I are wise enough to know that perfection doesn't exist. And yet there's so much external pressure to get the best grades, to retake the SATs, to get the highest percentile so that you get into the best schools. And that right now is in the, in the context of all of the shifts that are going on in the world. And even I think Gen Z especially is now questioning, like, why are we even doing this? Like, really, why are we doing this? Like, what is the point to all of this? So over generations, we're seeing some more conscientiousness about at least asking the question why we're doing it. But I think that we do it because we can. A lot of the women, all of the women that I work with are very, very talented, very, very bright, and they can do. So if you can do it, then you should do it but there doesn't leave a lot of room for mistakes, certainly. And there doesn't leave a lot of room for rest. What I've been saying for the past couple of years is that the old model of grit, tenacity, and hard work is no longer the way forward. I don't believe. I think we need to lean into things like flow and creativity and intuition and rest as a way of elevating our consciousness and also connecting in with that heart space that you and I've been talking about. Yeah, I, I love what you just shared there because I, I, I do, I wholeheartedly am with you on that. And I recognize it even in myself when I create space, it allows me to create. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm going, 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 I, I don't have time to even think about creating. Mm-hmm. And creating, you can define that in many, many ways. Um, but that space is sacred. 
right? Mm -hmm. And it's finding that whether it's, you know, 10 minutes or two hours or whatever that looks like for each individual, it's that the importance of recognizing how that fuels you and what you gain from that instead of just the go, 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 go. But here's the thing. Generally speaking, we're not particularly comfortable with just being. Oh, I know. (laughs) And we're not particularly comfortable with any fuel source other than adrenaline and caffeine and sugar. So when the body's running on those things and the mind is not comfortable with just being, those are some of the barriers that I see Mm -hmm. as people are making the shift. That's what got us into burnout to begin with is running on adrenaline, caffeine, sugar, and so on. Yeah. Right. Using stimulants to get us going in the morning. And then at night, that nice glass of wine or whatever it is to, to soothe ourselves enough so that we can sleep well enough so that we can get up and do the same thing again. So this whole shift out of burnout is retraining the system to use different fuel source Mm -hmm. to be comfortable with being uncomfortable living in the void. I just had this thought the other day, I'm, I'm have some things coming up, but they're not here yet. And I had this sense of agitation inside of me, like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And that's me after 20 years of (laughs) training myself (laughs) to be present with what is and to lean into the, the, the uncomfortable feeling of it's not here yet. Um, So if we're not aware of that, I think that that can be the, one of the barriers that we have to address to break the busyness cycle to reconnect with something that is more loving, kind, gentle to run our bodies, our minds, and our spirits on other than those three things that I already mentioned. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was beautiful. And so many wonderful takeaways Mm -hmm. and tips from that. It's interesting. I mean, you and I clearly come from the same cloth (laughs) um, because being is something I I work on every day. I'm not great at it. I'm not, it's not something I'm even trying to be perfect at, (laughs) but you you don't get a pluses in just being, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm sure I'm attempting it. Right. Yeah. It's so important because we are conditioned from such a, a young age of doing, right. It's the to-do list, like ticking boxes and checking off. And it's that shift not only emotionally and mentally, but also spiritually to trust yourself into um, not having to take boxes, but to being what you're actually living and saying and doing. What would be some of your thoughts, Dr. Robin, on you know, even just one or two tips on how to help somebody make that shift from doing to being? There's a real recording on Instagram that I see some of my colleagues using on their, on their reels. And it's, I'd love to go with the flow, but um, what time does the flow start? (laughs) Nice. So I always look at honoring strengths Mm -hmm. and being mindful about when even strengths can tip into sort of um, over control, we'll call it. Yeah. Right. Getting comfortable with our emotions, I think, is the number one thing that can shift things pretty quickly. But in order to do that, you have to be able to sit with your emotions. Mm 
I'm always surprised by this. And yet then again, I'm not, people would rather talk about anything else other than emotions, especially in the corporate space. (laughs) And it's really only been in the last couple of years that since the pandemic, I've been supporting a lot of people, a lot of leaders in corporate who are emotionally intelligent. And they're finally saying, oh, thank God we can talk about this now. But up until, up until the pandemic, like nobody wanted to talk about this, what they, they tell me it's touchy feely stuff. I'm just like, we're going to talk about emotions because everybody has them for the most part. There are some people who really don't have a whole lot of access to emotions, but I know that our listeners I'm guessing do. They do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so we have to honor the emotional intelligence. I think that's the first step. I had an, I think this will answer your question in a a story-based way. A couple of years ago, I was sitting with an EVP at a major organization here in, uh, in America. I think they're, they're actually global, but he was here in America and we were talking about bringing me in to talk about emotional intelligence with his team, which was largely male, but there were, there are women on this team who are asking him, bring Dr. Robin in. We need, we need to talk to her. So we're talking about emotional intelligence in this pre-planning meeting. And he kept on rolling his eyes and he kept on saying, that's just so touchy feely. And I sat there and I found myself doing two things. One was I was kind of finding myself contorting my message in order to appease this, this man who clearly was telling me that he's not comfortable with his own emotions. Mm-hmm. And what I will say about that is that I ended up not moving forward with that particular part of the organization because of that conversation I had with him. Um it created the conditions for me to put a stake in the ground about my my now heretofore unwillingness to apologize or to make things be okay for other people around emotional intelligence. You know, I've spent 20 years working in this field, so I shouldn't have to justify. And, And I'm not talking about just having the conversation about what it will be like to bring me in. But just to defend against that to people who are in power was something that kind of rattled me for a minute, but ultimately it created the conditions for me to put the stake in the ground. So I share this because when we're looking at making shifts, the first place we have to start is with ourselves. We can't expect people who don't have a whole lot of emotional intelligence to do this for us. So instead of that, what if we spend some time with our own emotions and get real comfortable just even speaking them, just even noticing them for ourselves, not apologizing for them and not defending against them either, but just knowing that they're there and get real comfortable with ourselves because it's going to be an internal process that starts with the individual and spans out from there rather than kind of a top-down edict from somebody outside of ourselves who are going to say now emotional emotions are fine to talk about in the workplace. Does this make sense in terms of what we're talking about with just getting comfortable with emotions and kind of moving into the space of being able to just be? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, and I think you've said a number of things there. It goes back to what we started with, with not being so focused on the external, but focusing on the internal Mm -hmm. and, and it's not, blaming others. It's not counting on others to change your 
life, your way of showing up, your way of being, it does have to start with you. Um, and, and I think that's an, the other thing I think I, I heard there that was super important is being able to sit with your emotions, not trying to stifle them or not being embarrassed because you might be feeling a particular way, but being able to sit with that and, and really absorb why are you feeling that way? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. such a, a huge piece of how your own growth and expansion happens. It really is. I've had women hire me because they didn't want to cry in the office. Yeah. Yeah. I remember getting, I've gotten calls from women saying, Robin, I have to work with you because I cried at work the other day. It's like a woman's leaders, a woman leader's greatest fear is crying at work. And yet we've all done it. Who hasn't gone into a bathroom stall and, you know, and the gnashing of teeth and the crying and the red eyes afterwards. But, um, And certainly I did. I almost wrote my dissertation on adult crying because I was so afraid I was going to cry during my dissertation defense. Fortunately, I found my way through that and didn't have to write on that. But the idea, (laughs) the idea here is that, you know, just getting comfortable with our own emotions, not so that we lose our, lose our heads at work necessarily, but when we're comfortable with our own emotions, it, it gives other people the opportunity to explore and to pay attention to what's going on in themselves as well, which creates a culture that is basically the opposite of burnout. When we have leaders who are always ignoring our emotions and sitting at work until 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, responding to emails or doing whatever, it sets a tone also for those who are rising behind us. Absolutely. There's some responsibility there, I think, for the leadership to get real comfortable with emotions. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting when you were sharing that example. um, I remember one time this consulting firm I was working with, quite large, global, (laughs) and the head of HR said to me, I want you to work with our women on not crying because they're getting too emotional. And so I said to her, I go, Oh, okay. I said, so am I supposed to work with them about not laughing at work? And she went, what? And I said, sister, (laughs) I said, it's an emotion, right? Like we all experience it. And I said, and for the record, some people cry because they're happy. Some people cry because they're upset. Like it's a release, right? Just like laughing, right? Some people laugh when they're, when they're stressed or nervous. Some people laugh when it's funny. Like So I said, it's understanding the context of where it's coming from, number one. But I said, why are you uncomfortable with women crying? And you started with her. You started with her. (laughs) I did. Which is appropriate. A a woman inviting that conversation, but pointing outside of herself. And then you just brought it back to her. So what'd she say? She, She was shocked, number one. She was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And I said what is wrong with us being able to express ourselves, right? And for the record, there are men who do it too. It's not just women. Men cover it up a little bit better um, because we do tend to, we're more expressive Mm -hmm. overall. Um, But anyway, it was just interesting how she responded to that. And and so I loved your example there. And I think that's a a really important, it's an opportunity for us to look at how emotions show up and how we do express it. And to your point, it's not about blowing up and going ballistic on something. Mm -mm. That's not what we're saying at all, but it's sitting with that emotion. Where's that coming from and why? And, and how do you break that down in a way that helps you understand it? And it is going in here, right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, and, and being able to have that conversation with someone to express it is absolutely, to me, it's critical that you can do that. Mm-hmm. I was, as you were talking, I was reflecting, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for about 10 years. Even as I was doing my PhD, I was still working at this one company. And I told some of my mentors that I was thinking about doing my dissertation on women crying at work. Both of them were a male and they had these men who I worked with. I always was so fortunate to have mentors, both male and female who were, they just loved me. They just loved me. And both of them said, well, I don't see a problem with crying at work. And it was just such a different perspective and coming. So there was something around permission to just be your whole self at work that had started. I know that that's something that we talk a lot about now in the corporate space, bring your whole self to work. That was something that for me started in, you know, probably 17 years ago, as I was in my thirties, starting in this, you know, working in the pharmaceutical industry. So it's always been there. And I think that now more than ever before, we have this opportunity to bring um, emotional intelligence, emotional maturity, emotional self-regulation front and center. That doesn't mean being buttoned down and not having emotions, by the way. It means being able to navigate the emotional landscape for yourself and for other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to your point with modeling, like as leaders, when you model that as a leader, you're giving permission for others to do that as well. And, um, And that's where the gold is in innovation and and creativity. (laughs) And that's if you're all buttoned up and running so tight and white knuckling around emotions, you, if you want to unleash creativity in your organization, tap into the emotional landscape of your, of your people. Yes. Yes. And just to loop that back to, you know, just taking the pause. I mean, Mm -hmm. that, that also is a big part about engagement and, Mm -hmm. you know, take that pause and and really determine how you can be in that space before you make that decision to, to leave. Cause to your point, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) There you are. Yes. Because whenever you, you are thinking about leaving a job, let's just dial that in. Uh, there can be a a rejection of what currently is going on. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. Well, the Buddhist philosophy is suffering is caused by clinging, but it's also caused by pushing things away that you don't like. So as much as we can just be in curiosity and open-heartedness and compassion about what is while turning our attention to what's possible. That's going to move mountains much more quickly than pushing against and railing against what is. I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place to rail against what is, especially if there are huge injustices that might or abuses that might be happening. I'm not saying stay in a bad situation, but if it's just a crunchiness around, I'm not doing what I know that I'm meant to be doing, and therefore I'm going to reject what is because I believe that that's the only way that I can get to where, where I want to be, then we need to re-examine them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. That's a great tie. Thank you. <laughs> so, so let's talk a minute about your book. Okay. Yes. Watching our time, but I, I want to make sure we, we talk about your book. So you, you wrote this great book called smart girls in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Maybe just, you know, share with me why, why did you mm-hmm. pick this and what has your research taught you from, from writing this? 
Well, I can't talk about Smart Girls in the 21st Century without talking about the original Smart Girls book, which was written by the lead author on Smart Girls in the 21st Century, who's my mentor, who was, she's a dear friend of mine now, but my mentor in graduate school, Barbara Kerr. She wrote the first edition of Smart Girls back in the mid 80s. She had studied gifted and talented girls from my generation. So the first Smart Girls book was written about the Gen X girls, understanding our psychology, understanding our emotional, social, and intellectual needs. She really brought forward values-based career counseling, things like that, because at the time, the thinking was, if you're smart, you'll figure it out. So there wasn't a lot of career development, at least where I came from. And I think overall, that was the case and or career direction for for gifted girls. So that was the original smart girls. Well, years later when I was in grad school, I was I think in my third year of my PhD program and everybody had a thing, you know, like everybody has a focus on there. I didn't have a thing. I'm like what's my thing? And I started really I'm a prayerful person and I and I pay attention to my connection with divine source and I was praying and I was like I want my mentor. Where's my mentor? Well, lo and behold, like Later on that semester, Barb took a job as the a distinguished professor in my program. So the author of Smart Girls came to the program and I said to my department chair, I've never asked for anything. I want to be her research assistant. And that's how Barb and I got connected. Oh, so <laughs> it was, and that changed, really it changed the course of my life in terms of what I was doing, understanding myself research is me search. Somebody's told me one time, especially in psychology mm-hmm. to understand myself as a creative woman, to understand myself as a grown-up smart girl, to understand myself as a spiritually intelligent person. All of those things kind of coalesced to the place in graduate school where Barb and I, Barb was getting ready to write this next edition, smart girls in the 21st century. And she invited me to be the co-author on this particular project with her. So it was a great honor. And it was, I think, kind of a passing of the torch as well mm-hmm. in terms of who was going to take the lead on this. And that was certainly something that has been near and dear to my heart from the time I started working with her is actually mentoring gifted and talented girls and women in their careers, especially. So that's kind of the basis of it. Um, you know, Smart Girls in the 21st Century came out in 2014. There's some timeless information in there that I think is important for our listeners to just know about. I always say you don't have to read the whole book because it's it's geared toward gifted and talented educators and parents for the most part. It's if you've got a gifted girl in your life, definitely it's a good read, but there's some history of gifted education and things like that that are a little bit, you know, educationally challenging to to pay attention at least for me. And I and I helped write it. So Um, but the, the chapters in the book that I really love for us today that are relevant for us today, the chapter on twice exceptionality is something that I think is important to pay attention to. So people, women who are twice exceptional have good processes, processing speeds in our heads. So we've got fast brains are very bright, but we also have something else going on. And that something else can be ADHD, which is something that I work a lot with. Um, autism spectrum disorder, it can be a mood disorder, it can be anxiety, depression, any kind of cognitive, I, I hate to use the word disability, but cognitive difference, we'll say, that creates an additional challenge for the brain. 
One of the things that we say about twice exceptional girls and women is that we mask a lot of our differences, not because we're being manipulative or being, you know, sneaky or anything like that, but simply because we can, because we had to figure out how our brains would work. So I have, I'm very public about this. I have ADHD. I didn't discover that until I was in graduate school and I was working with these girls who were very bright and also had ADHD. And I was like, oh, I relate. (laughs) Oh, well, I had been diagnosed with anxiety and depression in my twenties right before I burned out. So we knew I had that, but that didn't fully explain some of these symptoms I was having Mm. that Finally, when we landed on the ADHD diagnosis, that was really a game changer for me in terms of understanding myself and how I operate in the world. So the chapter on twice exceptionality is is super important. I also really love, there's a chapter on eminent women. And one of the things that we know about eminent women, so we wrote about women like Tina Fey and Jane Goodall and Sonia Sotomayor, the Supreme Court justice. And I wrote, there's a little segment on Malala, the the girl from Everybody Knows Now, the girl who um, from Pakistan who was shot for going to school and who then like right around the time, I think she won the Nobel Peace Prize, like right around the time the book was published. So what we know about eminent women is that they across the board have at least one person in their lives who don't just believe in them, but believe them. They don't. Nice distinction. Does it, does that make sense? Mm-hmm, absolutely. When, when they say, when a woman says, I want to do a thing, there's somebody in her life who doesn't say, well, why are you sure? They don't question. They just say, oh, okay. Okay. I believe you. And they believe in them too, but that being having at least one person in your life who just believes you is the key to unlocking eminence, I believe. So those are the two chapters that I really love that I always recommend people take a look at. Awesome. Well, they sound, they both sound amazing. And And there's other good stuff in there too. There's a chapter on uh, adult women and our careers, women who are later in our lives and, um, you know, after retirement, what happens and what they can do with their lives then too. So there's a lot of good stuff in there, but that's, that's our smart girls book. And I love it. It's my favorite. I had had a vision to write a book for a long time and I'm just honored to be part of that project. Awesome. Well, it sounds amazing. And it sounds like you had a great co-author working with you. Mm -hmm. Um, So beautiful. And and that's a great gift to the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so again, the title of the book is called Smart Girls in the 21st Century. And so where can people find that? Is Amazon? Amazon. That's always a good thing. You can find it. I I have a link to it in my Instagram as well. And the link is in the bio, but you can go to it there as well. But Amazon is the place to find that. Awesome. And, you know, that's just, it's just is kind of, it's been the heartbeat of my work for years and years, even be, even as I was writing that it was the heartbeat of my work. So that's something that I'm just really proud of. Well, and, and what I heard you say a moment ago, just really struck me. I made sure I wrote it down was research is me search. That is so (laughs) true. Oh my gosh. I love that phrase. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow it if you don't mind. (laughs) No, you should. I had, I remember I was sitting in my pre-doc internship class. There were like six of us and we're sitting with the director of training, Heather, Heather Frost was her name. And she, um, 
we were talking about what the projects were we were working on. And I told her I was working on um, creative personality, intuition, and she just leaned back in her chair and she's like, well, research is me search, isn't it? I guess it, yes, it is. So we can attribute that to Heather all those years ago. <laughs> okay. Well, Heather, thank you for that. We're going to, yes. we're going to all borrow it. <laughs> love it. Love it. So Dr. Robin, I, I, we've talked about so many awesome things and thank you so much. I, I do want to give you an opportunity like what would be one or two things you would really want our audience to leave with today? Well, what my, the drum that I'm beating right now is around embodying your leadership, who you are as a leader matters. It makes a difference in the world. And if you're not fully embodied in your leadership, meaning this, a lot of us walk around kind of from the neck up. We've got a good sense of our thinking. We have a good sense of what we, what we know from our education, our training and so on, but we want to just pull all of that knowledge down into our body. So that's what I mean by embodiment. Just pull it in to every cell of your body and walk around and be the leader who you are. Don't do leadership. We be leadership. So a leader's job is to carry the vision, to notice and manage energy and things like that. It's a very different way of being in the world than it is when you're an individual contributor. So make that psychological shift from individual contributor to leader, because I find a lot of leaders are still you know, rolling their sleeves up and getting down in the weeds with their contributors, because that's the only thing that it, it, that's the most familiar thing to them. So it, there's that transition to embodying leadership. So that's one thing. And the other thing too, is to, I think just to reflect back what we talked about is to get really comfortable with your own emotions, to learn about them, to learn about the spectrum of emotions, because what the, the research in positive psychology is clear is that the better you feel, the more creative you can be, the better your relationships are. There's even, there's even evidence for raises, promotions, influence as a result of how you feel. So if you're not connected with how you feel, get there and work with somebody who's adept at it. We're not taught about emotions. Nobody talks about emotions as much as we should anyway. And so the expectation that you would know how to do this yourself is, well, frankly, ridiculous. Um, and yet that's kind of the story that we tell ourselves is I should know how to do it by ourselves, by myself. So find somebody who can work with you on that. Yeah. Love that. That's awesome. That's beautiful. So much richness in this conversation today, and we could go on for hours. No, no question about that. Um, I want to thank you for mm -hmm. sharing your story, but also sharing your time with us and your expertise. Uh, I know our audience has heard a lot of really key information today. And, you know, I just want to echo your comment about embodying leadership and, and recognizing that leadership doesn't mean you have to be running a corporation. Leadership is how you lead your life. Um, mm -hmm. So I love yes. how you how you've shared that. So I want to thank you for joining us and imparting all this wisdom. And I want to thank our audience. Um, we do know you have a choice as to what podcast you listen to. We hope you've enjoyed today. Please reach out to Dr. Robin if you have more questions. Dr. Robin, maybe just share where they can find you on your sure. website. Sure. So my website is Dr. D-R-R-O-B-Y-N-M-C-K-A-Y dot com, drrobinmckay.com. 
And I actually have a leadership quiz that pops up there just as you come, come into the website. I think that the best way to start embodying your leadership is to know what your leadership style is so they can take the leadership styles quiz and get some solutions there as well. So that's a place to find me. I'm also on LinkedIn, which is where you and I connected. So grateful for LinkedIn and Instagram is another great place to find me. Awesome. So you heard that straight from the doctors now, yes, <laughs> LinkedIn, ma'am. Instagram, and you know how to reach her on her website. Um, and you know, if you have questions, feel free, you can reach out to me as well. You can direct message me. And also I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn under Will Empowered. Um, but just want to thank you all. And hopefully you're taking some nuggets away from our conversation today that helps you to be more of that leader that you want to that you want to be in leading your life. Dr. Robin, thank you again so much for joining us and our audience. We hope to see you on our next podcast. Take care, everyone. See you soon. And we want to thank our sponsor, Women in IT Summit Canada. We're delighted to announce that registrations are still open for the 2022 Women in IT Summit Canada. This event will take place at the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto on October 25th. The agenda is packed with must-attend sessions, keynote speakers, debates, fireside chats, and workshops to educate on and discuss how we can put diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility at the core as we continue to develop revolutionary technology. You can find out more about this event at womeninitawards.com. I hope to see you at the event. Thanks again for sponsoring this session of Women in Leadership Talk.